loved me and how much he poured out his life and his love to me. And then that kind of really uh, accelerated my Christian growth, so to speak. And so even as I was, you know, I walked in and then suddenly the song was coming and then I was reminded, 1st October, my dad's death anniversary today. And, you know, even as we're worshipping, I just want to remind all of you your identity and who you are as a son and daughter in God. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are son or daughter. I saw that coming. I saw that coming. You know, but all of us are sons and daughters of, of God and, you know, it's, it's really a special thing. And, you know, today, and I, I'm going to tie everything in together. I was given a particular topic to preach on. Um... I, was told, no, I wasn't told to strictly follow it, but you know, I was, I was really preparing it and uh, Jessica, but anyway, I was preparing it and uh, it's really something that has been speaking to my heart lately and it's really something that is in line with the season that I'm in. Now, how many of you believe that we are living in the last days? How many of you think so? You know, I, I think we are living in the last days. I don't know how many years, it could be 50, it could be 20 years, it could be, I don't know, it could be tomorrow, I don't know. But I believe that we are living in the last days when the Bible talks about the last days, when the Bible talks about Jesus coming back, we are living in that period. You look all around you, we talk about financial crisis that's happening. We're talking about countries that is in debt. Countries that are, I mean, US is billion, trillion dollars in debt. A lot of money in debt. We're talking about global crisis. We're talking about national catastrophes that's happening all over the world. Typhoon in Philippines. How many of you four nights ago thought that a typhoon was hitting Singapore? Wow, see, man. I got power. What is that, man? Seriously? Oh, really? Uh, seriously? Uh, I thought suddenly at the right time this happens. Uh, but, you know, four nights ago, how many of you actually thought that... The, the, how many of you were awake at 12.30 in the morning and you saw the winds going, the howling and the rain was happening? You thought that, wow, the world is coming to an end. You know, it was really amazing. I was like looking at my window, the trees were falling. The, there's a tree in front of my house that fell down. The, the, and then my car has... A, I, I just changed the alarm in my car. And so it's very sensitive. Now you touch it, it starts ringing and buzzing. And so the wind actually caused my car alarm to buzz. It was that strong. And so I was like, oh my goodness, the world is coming to an end. And I started praying on my knees. And, oh no, but anyway. And I really believe we're living in the end days. And, and so today we're going to talk about the topic that I really believe is close to my heart because I believe that this is the day that the church will rise up. This is the day that young people like you, and not me, I'm not so young, but me, uh, yeah. we're the same age, right? Yeah, we're the same age, I think. Yeah, but anyway, you are young people that, you know, we need to rise up. The church needs to rise up because we are living in the end days. And if you don't rise up, if I don't rise up, then who will? And the church needs to rise up. And churches together, united as one body, need to rise up and say, hey, you know what? We need to do something in the last days. We need to do something in the end of days. Um, just yesterday, uh, out of interest, I started studying the history of the church and I was flipping, you know, I was just flipping uh, a little bit of text and I was reading what was the church like in history? If you think about what the church was like, you know, in the time of Acts, it started as a little fellowship, 120 people in the upper room. They started praying. Holy Spirit came down and they broke, you know, they became powerful and they started, you know, breaking out and reaching out to the people around them. And then the church just moved from wherever they were in, in Israel, in Judea, in Samaria, and they started moving out. And then it went to Europe. It became a culture. You know, if you talk about the church in Europe, how many of you have been to Europe before and been to a church? How many of you have been to Europe and seen a church, a physical building, in Europe, um, most of the churches that you see in Europe today do not have a service at all. It is just a building. But it's beautiful buildings. Beautiful. I mean, the architecture, the design of the whole entire building is beautiful because the church in those days, in the 4th century, it was a renaissance. Artists were coming in, architects were coming in, they were designing these churches. And then it moved on to where 
the church is today. It's become an enterprise. It's become a business. If you go to the U.S., you have one of the richest churches. The richest churches are all in the States. Billion-dollar industry, million-dollar industry, and it's become an enterprise. I struggled with it a bit because I, I started wondering, what is the purpose of the church today? You know, are we supposed to be just an enterprise? Are we just supposed to be concerned about having big buildings, having big crowds, and earning a lot of money? And I started realizing that the church today is meant to impact society. The church today is meant to influence society. And the church is meant to be strong. It's supposed to be strong. It's not outwardly strong, but inwardly we are supposed to change and shift paradigms in our world today. And you and I are the church. You and I are the church. You know, and this is, not an, this is just an introduction, but you know, three times or twice, rather, Jesus went into the temple and he cleared the temple. We know this very familiar story. Many of you grew up in church, so you know this story. Jesus went to the temple. They were selling stuff. They were selling, uh, you know, all these things. And they were like, it was, became a marketplace. And Jesus twice in the Bible said, first time he said this, this is my father's house. He said, this is my father's house. And the second time it happened, or it was mentioned in the Bible, says, this is my house. So Jesus first said, this is my father's house. Then the second time he said, this is my house. And then when he walked out in the temple in Matthew 23 and 24, if you want to read it for reference, Jesus looked at the disciples and he looked at the disciples and said, this, this is your house. And I really believe that Jesus was shifting responsibility before the people had this idea that this is God's house, the temple. And Jesus made a statement, no, this is my house and it's a house of prayer. And before, in Matthew 23, 24, when he was just about to be crucified, he looked at the disciples and said, this is your house. The church is your church. When Jesus looked at Peter and says, upon this rock I will build my church, he was not just looking at Peter and saying, okay, Peter, you are the man but he was talking about men and women in today's society as saying, you are the bedrock of the church. You are the foundation of the church. So turn to the person next to you and say, you are the church. All right, and so now I, I just want to sh- kind of set that framework a little bit. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 14 to 28. Tiara, I can return you your Bible. You know, Luke chapter 11, verse 14 to 28, the topic is supposed to be battle stations. Luke chapter 11, verse 14, 28. If you guys are there, just shout, shout, give me a big wave and let me know you're there. Luke chapter 11, verse 14 to 28. Okay, before I begin, let's just open with a word of prayer. Come, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this afternoon. Lord, we thank you and we ask God that you just come in this place, Lord. Just penetrate into this place, Lord. Penetrate into every heart that's here, Lord. Let us realize our identity and who we are in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Okay, I'm going to read it. Anybody who has got a really loud voice, why don't you read it? All 12 verses. Luke chapter 11, verse 14 to 28. Who's got a loud voice in this room? Okay, Jared. <laughs> Actually, just Jessica just proved the point that she's got a loud voice. Okay. Jared, are you going to read it? No, he's not going to read it. Okay, we invite Jessica to read it. How many of you want Jessica to read it? Just give a loudest applause. Yeah. The whole thing. 14 to 28. Um, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man who had been mute began to speak, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, By the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. Others, to test him, began asking for a sign from heaven. But Jesus Realizing their thoughts said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed, and a divided household falls. 
So, so if Satan too is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I ask you this because you claim that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his possessions are safe. But when a stronger man attacks and conquers him, he takes away the first man's armor on which the man relied and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places, looking for rest, but not finding any. Then it says, I return to the home I left. When it returns, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. So the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he, whole thing, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd spoke, to, spoke out to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that, at which you nursed. But he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. How many of you actually read this scripture and suddenly say, wow, I know what this, sermon, this scripture is talking about exactly. And I say, wow, this is, this is a very straightforward verse. How many of you actually? You know, I read this once, twice, three, four, five times and I was like, what? You know? And so I was really reading and really studying and preparing for today and suddenly it really struck me and everything just kind of ties in together and I praise God for that. And you know what? As I mentioned earlier, the church needs to rise up. You know, the church needs to rise up. The church needs to prepare itself for the end days because you know what? The church is the church that is going to influence. The church is going to be the church that is going to impact society. And you know what? We need to know our identity as a church before we decide what our purpose is. All right? We need to know our identity as who we are, who we are as a person, as an individual, as a church, before we know what the purpose of the church should be like. And here we see this scripture, and I'm going to break it down a little bit and kind of just go through a little commentary to kind of give us an understanding what God or what Jesus was talking about in these days. You know, in verse you know, 14, it says Jesus was driving out a demon. So we just imagine Jesus found this demon-possessed man. Or rather, he was demon-possessed, but he was a mute. And so Jesus chased out this demon. And so the, the man could talk. And so th- this group of people started to start talking. The first group says, wow, that's amazing, right? If you look at verse 15, it says, by some of them, um, verse 14, it says, and the crowd were amazed, right? The crowd was amazed. So this first group of people thought, hey, this is amazing, man. All right, the second group of people said, hey, he must come from Bezobab. You know, he must be a demon himself. Therefore, he had the power and authority to chase out another demon. Then another third group of people says, hey, you know what? We need to test him. All right, and I, was real, I realized one thing. In today's world, in today's last days, we're seeing a lot of signs and wonders that's happening. You know, a lot of people have questions. A lot of people are wondering what's happening in the world. There's healing taking place. There is, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you, you hear stories of angel sightings. You hear stories of gold dust. I mean, we see and we hear all these things that's happening in the world today. And I realized there are three groups of people that react to this. Number one, the first group, they are amazed. Wow. You know, they're amazed. They're actually literally amazed. Wow, this is amazing. Right? If one day, uh, one day someone next to you got healed, you're like, wow, amazed. Just yesterday, we had a church prayer meeting and uh, this, this, this man from our adult service, 70-year-old man, and uh, about a month ago, fell into coma, apparently had a disease that only five people in Singapore has. And so they were sharing and they were talking about this man and he was in coma for many weeks. And so they started the prayer chain, they started praying for him. But long story short, uh, he had this virus that attacked him, that attacked his brain, his lung and his heart at one go. 
and they, the doctors didn't know what to do and how to treat him. And so they started this prayer chain. But in the last one week or two weeks, um, when the doctor told his wife and says, and they're, they're, they're nominal believers apparently, I mean like, you know, not very strong Christians, they just joined our church. And the, the, the wife has been praying ever since it happened and suddenly she told the doctor, no, I don't believe it, I rebuke it in Jesus' name. And anyway, all the tests that came out eventually became negative. And so this man who, 70 years old, who was in coma, doctors didn't know what to do, now is conscious and now is ready to get out of the hospital, is out of his coma, and we know that it's because of the power of prayer. And you know what? We can stand there and say, oh, three things, wow, amazed, wow. But it's another group of people that look at something, a miracle that happens, and we go, we go against it. Oh, it must be the devil, uh, you know. We just go against it. We, 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 we go against it. We become doubtful. We, we, it's disbelief. You know, there's disbelief in our hearts. You know, but in the Bible it says many times there, there will be signs and wonders. And the third group of people, they attack it. You know, they want to test Jesus. Say, hey, you know what? Let's give Jesus a test. And they attack it. And test is not in a good test. Let me tell you something, guys. You know, there will be many false teachers in the last days. And the Bible says to test everything with the Word of God. And I encourage you, please, please, please read the Word of God. You know, please build your foundations on the Word of God. But when the Pharisees wanted to test Jesus, it was a malicious sort of test. They wanted Him to fail. And so there are three groups of people today that will have sort of like a reaction. They get amazed or they attack it or they, they disbelief. Alright? So anyway, moving down, this is just a commentary of the scripture before I actually preach. Sorry, a long introduction. Uh. Alright? And now, verse 15, Jesus now makes a distinction between him and Satan. He says that, hey, you know what? If I was really of the devil, why would I want to make my team disunited? Why would I want to attack my own guys? Doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus says, why, if I were from the devil, why would I want to attack my own guys? Doesn't make sense. He says, group that's united is stronger. Group that's divided falls. And so he was just making a distinction to the Pharisees. He said, hey, you know what? I am not from the devil. And he took a step even further. He says that, hey, if I am really from God, I'll, let me read it, uh, verse 20. He says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, if I am from, the, from God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. He makes a radical statement. He says, the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus is basically saying, hey, I am the kingdom of God and I am now here on earth. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is now on earth. Interestingly, if you read a few verses before this in chapter 11, what was Jesus talking about? What's the header in the first, in chapter 11 in Luke? Shout out the header. What does, what does it say? Teacher on prayer. And so what is the teaching of prayer? What did Jesus say in the teaching of prayer? He said the Lord's Prayer. What's the first two verses of the Lord's Prayer? First two sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Some of you guys recite it at home maybe. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus was teaching the people how to pray. He's teaching his disciples how to pray and says this. Pray this, our Father who art in heaven. And he made it very, very clear. First of all, we need to know our identity. He says, our Father. You know, our Father, right? And we need to know our identity as God the Father and us as children. And when, when God used the word Father in the Lord's Prayer, it's not like Father. How many of you call your Father, Father? I know one of my youth here call, him, call his Father, Father. Uh, father. But we don't really call Father. How do we call our dads? We call Pa, Dad. Something more intimate. Uh. You know, Pa. <laughs> you call Pa. But Father is... When, when the Bible used the word Father, the word that was actually used in Aramaic is the word Abba. And Abba really means daddy. Hey, dad, you know, daddy. You know? And it really is, it's really kind of, he really wants us to know our identity and who God is as our daddy, as our dad, as our Abba, Father. 
we need to know that identity. And the Lord's Prayer kind of set the tone. And the second verse, or the second sentence in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus said was, of, on earth as it is in heaven. He's basically saying, you know what? Whatever is happening on heaven, we want it on earth. On heaven as it is on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. Right? Basically just saying, hey, you know what? Whatever is on heaven, we want it on earth. And so Jesus makes this statement a few verses later and says, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Jeez. You know, I want to I, I take you a, a step further and think about the kingdom of heaven. Now, how many of you think there is uh, non-believers in heaven? You know, there are non-believers in heaven. I mean, just, no, I mean, we, we, we kind of, in our minds, we think, yeah, la, there probably is all, all Christians, all believers who are in heaven, right? And that's why God wants us to penetrate the society and says, hey, you know what? Win souls, win. Disciple nations, reach reach out to people, preach the gospel. Because on, on heaven, there is no unbelievers. We want believers. We want to reach out to people. I want to take a step further. How many of you think there is poverty in heaven? There is poverty in heaven. We're talking about heaven that is streets made of gold. Right? There's no poverty in heaven. And I really believe when Jesus was saying, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, He's basically saying, let's wipe out poverty on earth. Why do you think we need to bless people? Why did God tell us to blessed? Why did God tell us, or in the Bible tells us, Jesus says, you know, help the poor, reach the sick. How many of you think there's sickness in heaven? I mean, there's no sickness in heaven. That's why we pray for the sick. That's why Jesus says, pray for the sick. You know, how many of you think there's injustice and racism in heaven? I mean, there's no, there's, we're all one, we're all one family. And why do you think we need to eradicate? Why did Jesus say, love one another? Because on heaven, there's no injustice, there's no poverty, there's no racism, there's no injustice, there is no unbelievers, and we have to bring that values into where we are today. The church needs to bring those values on earth today. If you go to school, I know, I know parents don't really help. I, I, you, know, you know, when I was growing up, by the way, I'm going, I'm going to Bangladesh on Monday, but anyway, I know parents don't really help, or, and I always get scared of foreign migrant workers because of what parents sometimes say. And we have this, this perception in our minds and we kind of have that and we get scared and we, we kind of have this impression. But you know what? There is no racism on heaven. We need to love people around. And just to let you know, some of my youths, every Tuesday they go to the dormitories in uh, Tuas and teach migrant workers English for three months at each term. And I think it's an amazing thing. And, and I, they've been challenged to do it it's not something that we make it, we force them to do, but some of them feel that they want to do it and they are, are compelled by God's love to do that. But you know what? If you ask me, I will struggle, man. I will struggle because I struggle. Uh, you know, I have this perception and I have this, this thing and God is slowly changing me and He's sending me to Bangladesh on Monday. But I, I, it, I, let me tell you something. We need, to break, we need to break it. We need to break injustice. We need to break racism. We need to break perceptions that is not from God on earth as it is in heaven. Let's bring kingdom values to earth. Alright? Okay, I'm just going to read a little bit more. And then it, went, it goes down and says, in verse 21, okay, this starts getting a bit confusing. It says, When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Now, who do you think Jesus is referring to in the Bible when he says the strong man? And, you know, the strong man protects his house. How many of you guess? 
How many of you think that Jesus is talking about himself? Like, wow, the strong man guards his house. How many of you think it's Jesus? Okay. How many of you think he's talking about maybe Satan? A few, raise up your hands. You know, in this scripture, basically Jesus is talking about the enemy, Satan. He says, the strong man. And we need to recognize that the devil is strong. The enemy is strong. You see, the one moment we let our guards down, the enemy will come and attack us. We always remember that. And the enemy is always looking ways and means to kind of distract you, looking ways and means to kind of bring you down. But let me tell you something, that when God says, when Jesus says that we are more than conquerors, we are more than conquerors. When Jesus says that I'll be there for you, when Jesus says that even though you walk through the valley, well, Jesus didn't say that, but David wrote it, and of course God impressed upon his heart. When I walk through the valleys of the shadows of death, I will fear no evil. Because what? God is protecting him. When Daniel says, even in the lion's den, I will not fear. It's because he knew God was protecting him. And we need to understand this. Enemy is strong, but God is stronger. And so now Jesus says this, you know what? The enemy is strong and he's guarding his house. Let me tell you something. The earth is the house of Satan. And many times in the Bible, it's referred to that, the end, that, that Satan is the prince of the world. It's even, even when Satan took Jesus out to tempt him, what did Satan tell him? You know what? Everything in the world that you see right now, I give to you. Satan has the authority. Satan has that power. And he guards his house. The earth is the house of the enemy. And so the Bible says that Satan is guarding his house, but suddenly a stronger man comes along and attacks. A stronger man comes. And Jesus was referring to himself as the stronger man. Now, I love this verse when Jesus says that he is the stronger man. You know, we have this very familiar verse in the Bible, and I want you to turn to it. Okay, this is found in Matthew 16. Matthew 16. You guys doing okay so far? Matthew 16, verse 18 and 19. Alright, I'm going to read it. Matthew 16, 18, 19. And this is the scripture I shared about just now. He, said, he looked at Peter and says, Upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. And I'll give you the keys of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in, on, in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I like this verse. We read this verse often. We know this verse. Sometimes people quote it. And the verse says, And the gates of hell will not prevail. And you know, I used to read this verse and I used to think, you know what, the gates of hell will not prevail because God is protecting me. And I always took this defensive stance. I always took this very defensive position that, you know what, I, will, I, I don't need to fear because God is with me and gates of hell will not prevail. I was thinking about it and suddenly I had a revelation. Now, how many of you, I've, I've been attending a lot of weddings and today we just came from a wedding. And we have this thing called the Chuangman. Uh. I mean, you know what, uh, some of you, are, I don't know whether you've ever gone through or seen it before. Chuangman is basically, I think it's a very silly thing. If you ever get married, girls, please do not tekan your husbands or your friends' husbands. I go through the worst things. But anyway, this Chuangman thing is basically the husbands, it's a Chinese thing, uh, silly Chinese thing. But the husbands would have to go to the, the house and they have to kind of uh, do different tasks to kind of prove their sincerity and their love to the, the bride and hopefully win the bride over. And so they have to do a lot of silly things, right? You know? And they call this Zhuangman. Right? And so I had this revelation. I was attending a wedding two weeks ago and I preached this sermon in my youth, I think around the same time. And see, the gates of hell, basically it means this. The gates of hell cannot prevail because we are attacking, we're not defending. Let me repeat this to you. Uh. 
when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, it doesn't mean that, hey, you know what, we have to take a defensive position and, you know, because the gates of hell will not be able to attack us. What Jesus was saying is this, because the church has been empowered by Him through the Holy Spirit, that when we attack, the gates of hell will not prevail. And then He says this, He says, whatever that you do on earth it will happen in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Means what? Means we are the ones that take initiative. You know, sometimes Christians, they, we like to say, oh, no, no, I'm waiting for God and we, we need to pray. Yeah, you know, let's just wait. But suddenly, Jesus in this verse changes the paradigm. Whatever you do on earth will happen in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And Jesus suddenly changes the paradigm says, hey, you know what, guys? You are the church. You are meant to be powerful. You are empowered by me through the Holy Spirit that whatever you do on earth, it will happen in heaven and even the gates of hell will not prevail. When you attack, when you storm the gates of hell, the, he the gates of hell will not prevail. And now when we realize that perception, we don't become very defensive. We don't become like, oh, you know, I cannot do anything. You know, I was attending a conference the last few days and the speaker said this. The speaker was talking about the history of the church and he talked about the Dark Ages. Now, the Dark Ages happened in the early centuries, I don't know, maybe 7th, 8th, 10th century, the Dark Ages. How many of you ever heard of what the Dark Ages is? Dark Ages. Sorry for my pronunciation. The Dark Ages. A lot of ducks. Dark Ages. Basically, a Dark Age happened in early history and what happened during the Dark Ages was this. The church in, before that, in the 4th century, was leading society. They were impacting culture. The Renaissance happened. The Renaissance basically was this movement of arts, movement of uh, design and architecture and artists, and they were all Christians. And they were designing the churches, they were paintings, and all these happened during the Renaissance. They were spearheading, the church was spearheading the culture in those days. They were leading society. They were impacting people. And then suddenly what happened was, some people decided that, hey, you know what? The church is meant to move away from society because we're supposed to be out of the world. And so this group of people suddenly decided, hey, you know what? The church needs to live in seclusion. They decided that we all need to be monks and stay in temples and we cannot do anything. We cannot get married. We cannot live in society because if we are out in the world, we'll sin and we'll fall. And they became very defensive. And what happened was the Dark Ages started. And what do you mean by the Dark Ages? It means, now I have to pronounce my words. I'm so conscious of myself, you. <laughs> but you know what? Because of the Dark Ages... And, and what happened was because the church moved out of society, they decided that they cannot impact people anymore. They need to move out of society. The dark ages happened. And what, the, that, what happened? Economy fell. There was no more creativity in society. Nothing happened. There was doom and gloom. Basically, that happened because the church decided that they need to move out of society. And let me tell you something once again. The church is empowered we have to prepare ourselves, the battle stations, we need to strengthen ourselves and, hey, we need to impact society. We need to change what's happening in the world today. In the early 90s, two guys, Bill Bright, Lauren Cunningham, YWAM, and Church Campus Crusade, came together. Long story short, they were, have, they were supposed to have a breakfast meeting and when they were having that breakfast meeting, both of them had a vision the, the night before, a dream the night before, and God told them about the seven gates of society. I don't know whether you've heard this before. Some of you think it's familiar. Some of you may not have heard it. But these guys had the same picture of seven mountains. 
All right? And the seven mountains include family, include religion, include business, include government, include media, include arts and entertainment, include um, something else, family and, and education. And these seven mountains, Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham, God says you have to take over these mountains because the world is taking over these mountains and the church has to take these mountains. Long story, I also learned this in the conference also. Uh, 1988, 170 homosexuals came together and they said this, they said that we need to change people's perception of homosexuals and 170 people united as they were came together and says that in, by 1990, on the early 90s, we need to have 20 TV shows that will have a homosexual that is smart, that's funny, that's witty, that is good looking, that people will like and you know, so that we can change the idea and the perception of what the world thinks of a homosexual. And of course, they were successful. In 1992, they had 21 shows that had homosexual that was funny, witty, good-looking, charming, and, you know, and they had a survey done. In the 1990s, 17% disagreed of homosexuals. They said, or rather, 17% don't... 17% actually accepted the idea of homosexuals. 17%. 1995, when they took that survey again, it jumped to 58%. But because of these TV shows that suddenly people have an idea of what homosexuals, or they changed the perception of people's idea of homosexuals. I'll take that a step further. They decided, hey, you know what? We need to change the language that we speak. We need to change the idea of people. And they changed the language. We used to call them homosexuals. And then they coined the term gay. means what? Happy, right? So people think that gays are happy. Homosexuals are happy people. But it changed our perception of homosexuals. But let me tell you something. It, because they decided to take a mountain, they decided to take a mountain of society, they decided to say, you know what, we're going to take the media and the arts and entertainment, and it changed cultures. It shifted paradigms. And let me tell you something. The church needs to take and change the paradigm. We need to change people's culture and impact society. And you are the church. I don't know whether you go to school, and you look at your friends, and they do something, and we're like, okay, cool, you know, and we accept it. You know what? Let me tell you something. Today, we're living in a society where people, young people today, everything is okay. Everything's gray. When someone decides to do something, whether it's like, okay, let's say your friends are sleeping around, and you're like, okay, cool, you know, that's their choice, right? Pro-choice. But we need to make a stand. We need to be strong people and say, hey, we need to change the paradigm from what was gray and what is perceived as right, we need to know what is righteousness, what is holiness, and what is purity. All right, and so Jesus basically said this, you know what, we have been empowered to take control because, hey, you know what, the gates of hell will not prevail. Whatever you do, will be loosed in heaven. Amen? All right, and so basically this is the foundation of where, where we're taking. All right, this is just the foundation of this parable. Jesus chased the demon away he kind of qualified himself as I am the Son of God and I have brought kingdom upon, kingdom of God is now on earth. And then he said this, he says, I am stronger than the enemy. I am stronger than Satan. I am stronger than the devil. And he says this, that's it. That is the foundation of this parable. And then he brings it back to the people and he says two things. And this is the two points that I have for you today that I want you to take home this afternoon. First point was this. All right? Verse 23. Verse 23. He asked this question, or he said this statement. He looked at the people and he said this statement. It says that whoever is for me, 
right? Whoever is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. Very simple statement. It says that if you are with the enemy, if you are not with me, you are against me. And so Jesus makes this statement. It says that either you're for me or either you're against me. How many of you think that you're for Jesus? One, raise up your hands. Okay, two people, three, four, five, you know? How many of you think you're for the enemy? Okay, don't know. How many of you don't know? You know, first, so Jesus makes this statement. It says, either you're for me or either you're against me. I, I really like this statement because there's no such thing as in between. You know what? I, sometimes we, we watch a football. I love watching football. And when I watch two teams that I don't really support, I'm like, okay, la, whoever wins, wins. La. I just want to watch a good game. Right? But I don't stand on any... I, I just stand in the fence. I don't really have a, a, a team that I support, a team that I go against. But Jesus makes this statement. says, you are either for me or you're either against me. And I take this a step further. What do you mean by being for Jesus? Or what do you mean by going against Jesus? And I'm going to have three points in this, this question. Are we for Jesus? Are we for Jesus? Turn to the name and says, are you for Jesus? Alright, and so I have three points. And three things in, that I mentioned in the Bible where Jesus separated people. He separated people. Alright, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. It's a pretty long scripture, but I'm just going to summarize it for you. Matthew 25, verse 31. He talked about the goat and the sheep. And Jesus says, let's separate the goat and the sheep. And he separated the two. I'll just summarize this scripture. It says this, the goats are people who did not love, who did not show love, who did not show kindness. And the sheep are the people that were showing kindness and showing love. And he said this, these people are coming into the kingdom of heaven. Those who did not show love, those goats, were not asked to come in. He says, depart from me and you will be cursed. How scary is that? There's a distinction that Jesus made between the goats and the sheep. And it boils down to showing kindness, to showing love. Now, when Jesus says, are you for me or are you against me? If we are for Jesus, we need to show kindness, we need to show love. If you go to school today and you see someone that needs kindness, that needs to, to, to show or, or need someone to love them, are we actually willing to do it? You know, are we actually willing to do it? You know, sometimes we go to school, we don't really care about people around us. We go to our workplace, we don't really care about people around us. We are just kind of selfish. We just kind of think of our own selves and our own ambitions. But Jesus looks at the goat and the sheep and he splits the two up and he looks at the sheep. These are the people that bless those around them. These are the people that show kindness. These are the people that show love. And he looked at the goats and says, these are the people that didn't bother. Didn't bother. Not that they abused people. They didn't abuse people. They just didn't show love and kindness. And Jesus looks at the goat and he says this, depart from me and you will be cursed. How scary is that? All on the basis of showing kindness and love. But Jesus made that distinction. The second distinction I found in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 3. You don't have to turn to it. But this is when Jesus looked at the church and he looked at the church and says that you are a lukewarm church. Lukewarm church. Now, how many of you actually like drinking stale? How many of you know the taste of stale water? I actually wanted to bring this experiment today. I wanted to get uh, like, a, like warm water, ice cold water, and water that has been left like on a cup in my room for 10 days and bring it here and ask you to drink and taste the difference. There actually is a difference in taste, you know. But I was thinking about it and we sometimes read the scripture and we get a misunderstanding because God says, oh, you know, hot, you must be hot for me. Cold, 
if you want to be cold, then it must be all the way cold. And so, you know, and we say lukewarm means we are either be very hot for God or we just become very cold for God. You know, but what God was telling, was the, what Jesus was saying in, the, in this scripture was the, the, the distinction of effectiveness or the purpose. Hot water, cold water got purpose, but in those days, lukewarm water has no purpose. Hot waters come from the springs, there's a purpose to it. The cold water was refreshing from the mountains, there had a purpose to it. But the lukewarm water was just lying there, stale, no significance, no purpose. And so, he was referring to deeds when Jesus was talking about the church in Revelation chapter 3. He says this, Some of you, I see your deeds and I know you've been doing things, but many of you are lukewarm, stale, not fresh, purposeless, not doing anything significant. And he says this, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. And he was talking to the church that was lukewarm. And some of you, I want to question you today, this afternoon, and ask you, we know when we do something, when we serve in church, when we come to church, are we lukewarm? Are we stale? There's nothing fresh. We do things for the sake of doing. You know, we don't really care, indifferent about things. And God says, I will spit you out of my mouth. How freaky is that? Third distinction that Jesus made was in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. You don't have to turn to it, I'll read it. And it's a very familiar scripture, and I find it, this is one of the scariest scriptures in the Bible. Matthew 7, verse 21. I'll read it out to you. It says this, Now, everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Very familiar scripture in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. And Jesus again makes a distinction. He says this, If you are obedient to me, yeah, man, you know, you are a faithful servant. But if you do your own thing, if you are rebellious, then I will not know you, you evildoers. Verse 21 is the key. It says, But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven does the will. See, God is not looking for people that does great miracles and signs and wonders. He's not looking for people like that. He's looking for people who are obedient to Him. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, that obedience is better than sacrifice. God is looking for young people that is obedient to Him. And those that go against the will of the Father, He says, I do not know you. Away from me, you evildoer. I think it's very scary. There are three distinctions. And it's something that's very common. I mean, come on. Kindness, I walk past a beggar in the street. If I ignore him, I'm not showing kindness and I'm separated between being a sheep and a goat and he looks at the goat and says, hey, you know what? I curse you. Or maybe, you know what? Sometimes I get tired in church. I don't really feel like doing anything in church. I just want to slack. I just want to chillax. You know, I don't really want to get involved. You know, I just want to you know, maintain my status quo. You know, but Bible says, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. The third group of people Hey God, I've been doing great things for you, but you know, I, I, I preach, I, you know, I worship lead, I play the guitar in youth service, in loud gen. I'm part of the loud gen planning committee for the camp. I'm fantastic, I film, I do videos. And God looks at you and says, because you are disobedient to my will, I do not know you, away from me, you evildoer. I think it's really scary that Jesus makes such very clear distinctions. And why am I making such a scary message I probably, you probably won't invite me ever again. But I believe that when 
we are called to be a battle station. When God calls the church to rise up in the last days, He's looking for young people that's committed, He's looking for young people that's dedicated, He's looking for young people that's consecrated, set apart in holiness and purity. And that's why it's tough. It's a tough message that Jesus is looking for people who will stand for Him. So that's point one. Are you for Jesus? Are you for Jesus? Second point. By the way, if you're not for Jesus, it means you're for Satan. Uh, this, I mean, says, if you're not for me, you're against me, right? So, question is, are you for Jesus? And now the second point that Jesus makes in verse 24 and 25 in Luke chapter 11. You know, he says this. Once the, the demon is cast out, they start looking around for, for, you know, for a resting place. All right? And they start looking for a resting place and then they cannot find any resting place and they'll go back to the original house. And it says in verse 25, when it arrives, when the demon arrives, it finds the house swept, clean, and put in order. But then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? When the, we cast out the demons, the, you know, all these demons are scattered, and they, they run out. They look for a resting place, and they will go back to the original house, and they'll find it clean and in order, but they find seven people and attack that person again. And the Bible says that the man will be in a worse condition compared to previously. I thought about it for a minute. Hey, the house is clean, what? It's put in order. But why is the enemy able to go in again? And I realized one thing. How if you clean your, do household chores at home? Actually do household chores. Okay. One. Auntie Belinda. How many, how many do household chores? Well done, man. See, I live alone. Um, and so I have to do my household chores. And I actually have to clean my house. Um, before that, you know, because my mom is based overseas, so she, she, you know, she comes back once in a while. And so when she comes back, she expects the house to be clean. And so I actually put in a bit more effort when she's about to come back. I start cleaning, I start tidying up. But you know what I normally do? It's like, you know, you kind of like, oh yeah, she won't come into this room, so all the junk goes into this room. Like she doesn't really check underneath my bed, so I don't really sweep underneath my bed. You know, I don't really vacuum underneath my bed. She doesn't really come to my toilet. And so like, I just leave the toilet as it is. Gross, right? But anyway... And so, I just kind of clean a little bit. And like, well, the kitchen, she's always in the kitchen. I scrub and make sure the kitchen is really clean. And she comes home and she sees the living room. Oh, it's really cool. It's really nice and neat. The floor is mopped. And then she goes to the kitchen. Wow, very clean. And then she comes into my room. At first, she looks at the, the room. She says, oh, that's okay. Pretty good. And then she like looks under my bed. I don't know why she looks under my bed. And she says, oh my goodness, it's so dusty. And then she looks into my toilet. Horrors of horrors scream. Like, my goodness. You know? And I realized one thing, you know when the Bible says that, hey, you know what, it's clean, it's put in order. But I realized sometimes we clean and we put things in order from the front. You know, it's very obvious, we see it face value, it looks in order, it looks clean, it looks proper. But actually, inwardly, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. We are still the same. And I really believe that when Jesus said this statement, He's saying, hey, you know what, let us not be outwardly religious, but let us be inwardly transformed. Let us not just be outwardly, look good, Christian, we're religious, you know, but inwardly, in our secret place, when we're at home, we commit sins. I like it, you know, when Jesus mentioned a few times in the Bible, and I'll read it out to you, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. 
Jesus kind of looked at these people and he says, Hey, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your heaven, from, from God in heaven. And then the next few verses, it says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, out in the public, and be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. In full meaning that they received their reward only in public view. But it says this, But when you pray, go into your room, close the doors, and pray to your Father. He says, hey, there's a distinction between what we do outside versus what we do inside. And some of us, we know what it means like to be a Christian. We, we talk Christianese. We say the right language. We say the right things. When something happens, we say, oh, don't worry, I'll pray for you, brother. But inwardly, we never pray for that person. You know, we don't really care about a person, but we say it because we are Christians, right? You know, when we go to school, we react correctly. You know, we don't, you know, I'm Christian, you know. But God is, or Jesus rather, is making this, hey, you know what, outwardly we can do this. We can put things in order. We can say things that are right. We can appear to be good. But inwardly, we still have a gap that allows the enemy to attack us. And that gap is our inward life. What's your inward life like? If God is one day looking at you with a microscope and He's looking into every individual heart right now, inside, our thoughts, He's thinking our thoughts. He's looking through at our thoughts. What is God going to see? He's going to look at you and say, wow, fantastic, this guy is a solid Christian, consecrated, you know, and even if he sinned, you know, he has a heart of repentance. He has a great heart. Or is he looking at someone that is rebellious, someone that has a lot of hidden sins that refuse to repent, that refuse to let go? If God is now, at this point of time, looking at your hearts and your thoughts, what is he looking at? And so Jesus says this, are we outwardly religious? Are we just outside clean? And you know what? We are living, we're leaving a gap for the enemy to attack us. We're, leave, we're leaving the enemy to attack us. And so this is the parable of Bezalel. It's a very interesting parable. It's something that we don't read and we get it in the first place. But when I was reading it and I was praying for you guys, I really believe with all my heart that God wants to raise up this youth ministry Loud Gen, to be a ministry that is not just a fellowship group, it's not just a group that meets together and have fun together, but he's raising up a generation of young people that will impact cultures, that will impact society, that will influence your school, that will influence the people around you. And so he says, prepare the battle stations, prepare yourself. Number one, are you for Jesus? Are you for Jesus? And what does that mean? Do we have values? Do we have values? that is of Jesus Christ. Do we love people around us? Are we kind to those around us? You know, are we fresh? Are we effective in our deeds? And we have to ask ourselves these questions because Jesus made a distinction. And the second question, he says, are we outwardly religious or are we inwardly transformed? What's your inside life like? What's your prayer life like? Do you pray three times a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and that's it? You know, do we read the Bible just because I have to read the Bible. If not, Jessica will scold me and kind of read the Bible. I don't know. Is she fierce, huh, Jessica? Okay. I think she is. But anyway, you know, uh, uh, you know, what is our prayer life like? What is our Bible reading like? life like? Do we actually read the Word of God? Do we actually build on foundations? What is our spiritual disciplines like? And God is calling out for young people to have strong spiritual disciplines. If not... If not, the church will not be effective. If not, your youth group will not be effective. 
we can be a group of hype. We can be excited doing worship. We can clap, clap very loudly. But when we leave the doors on Monday, when we go back to school, our lives go back to normal. Why? Because we are not effective. We are not a battle station. We just become an ineffective believer. And God is looking for effective believers. And by the way, God doesn't really need a lot of people to change the world, by the way. He just needs a few people. You know, when Gideon, I mean, or, or, uh, when, when God called Gideon, how many people did he have with him? 300 out of thousands and thousands. But 300 people won the victory. When God decided to change society in Acts chapter 2, he had 120 people with him. 120 people only. But these 120 people were sold out and they changed the world. They changed. See, the thing is, we read this Bible and we think, hey man, you know, it must be 20,000, 30,000 people put together, you know, this, this entire Bible. But really, you read stories, they're all small individuals that came together with one vision. And God does not need a lot of people to change the world. He doesn't need, He just needs people that are sold out, that's strong for Him. And so, as a warning, when Jesus says to Bezabab, or He was talking to the Pharisees, He said this, the strong man, he's strong, but I'm stronger. I am stronger. But let me tell you something. When we say that we are stronger, we have to know that we are for Jesus. We, know that we need to know that we are with Him in one. And so today, I'm just going to close with that thought. Are you for Jesus? Or are you for the enemy? Second thought. Are you inwardly or outwardly religious, but inwardly untransformed, unchanged? So these thoughts I have for you and I'm just going to get the band to come up or at least the, the keys to come up and I'm just going to pray. You know, I really believe that God wants you guys to know that you will be a powerful church, a powerful youth ministry. You will be. But He's calling for young people like you and I to be consecrated, set apart for Him. And I just want you to take the next one minute right now to think about this question. This question and the question is this. Are you really for Jesus? If God is going to look at your thoughts and your heart right now and your mind and He looks right deep inside, what will He see? Will He see someone that is sold out for Him? Will He see someone that loves Him? Or will He see someone that is concerned about His own affairs? Now let me tell you something, the, the, the things of this world will distract us. The things of this world will tempt us, whether it's wealth. For boys, whether it's girls. You know, for girls, whether it's boys. You know, I tell you, I always tell some of my youths, the greatest, I'm not really so scared about, I tell the boys, I say I'm not so scared about the enemy and Satan. I'm actually more scared about girls. <laughs> because girls actually distract more than the enemy. I mean, I'm not saying that girls are enemies. Like, don't get me wrong. But I'm, I'm just, I was just saying it in jest. But we actually get distracted. We actually get tempted. And so my question to you today is, are you for Jesus? Are you for Jesus today? Are you ready to say, hey God, you know what? I'm with you. And he says in that verse, in Luke chapter 11, says that, if you are not with me, you are against me. But those who stand with me, or those who do not stand with me, I will scatter. Which also means, those who stand with me, I will bring together and we'll become united. So tonight, this afternoon, are you with Jesus? 
And so some of you are saying, hey, you know, I want to be with Jesus, but you know, there's still hidden things. I may be a religious person outside, but inwardly I'm unchanged. And so some of you today, this afternoon, says, God, I want to be changed. I actually want to change. I actually want to make a commitment to change. Some of you today are thinking, hey, you know what? I'm actually not totally sold out for Jesus Christ. You know what? Somewhat. I'm still worried about things of the world. I'm still distracted by things of this world. But you know what? Today you say, hey, I want to be sold out for Jesus Christ. Battle station. Are you a battle station? Are you an effective battle station? Are you just an emasculate object? No power, no authority, nothing. And God is calling for Christians that will rise up. Christians that will change society. Christians that will impact and influence people around you. And I'm looking at about 50 of you here and saying that, hey, all 50 of you can be a Christian, a believer that is sold out for Jesus Christ. Now I'm just going to share one story before I end. I shared this story with my youth group the other day and has impacted my life. There's this man called Robert Reed. If you ever have time, Google him, Robert Reed, R-E-E-D. And this was a man that was born in South America. And he has uh, this disease called cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy basically is a muscle disorder. And so, you know, his hands are like, like that. And you know, he can't walk properly. He can't talk properly. And so, in South America, he decided that he wants to be a missionary. And by the way, cerebral palsy means he can't walk by himself. He needs to wheelchair. He can't, you know, when he flips books, he has to flip the Bible like this way, like with his, with his palm. He can't really flip the Bible properly. Cerebral palsy also means that he cannot feed himself. He cannot put on clothes himself. He wears clothes that's made of Velcro because he cannot button the shirts, right? You know, he has the, the muscles cannot enable him to button the shirt. But he has to use a Velcro. And so this man decided one day, said that he would be a, God told him that he would be a missionary. And so this man, with no knowledge, with cerebral palsy, decided to go to Europe, Portugal, to become a missionary. And so he went, he enrolled himself in Bible school, learned the Bible, was there in Portugal. And all he could ever do was go to the park in Portugal and give out tracts and say Jesus loves you and that's all he does and he'll say like Jesus loves you and he'll give out these tracts and he did it for six years six years and so you might be thinking this guy must have won thousands of people for God and six years in the park he gave out tracts he has won 72 people 72 people in six years 72 people just by giving tracks, but 72. And one of the 72 that he kind of reached out to was one his wife eventually. But for six years, he was doing it for 72 years. And I was thinking, this man, cerebral palsy, disease, muscle disorder, went to the park every day for six years and reached out to 72 people. But when I was reading his story, I realized his story has impacted thousands of people, has inspired me. I'm a full, healthy man, full, full-bodied nothing wrong with me physically I don't even think I have said I've reached out to 72 people but this man cerebral palsy six years every day reached out and so he ran a, he runs training seminars now and he'll go to his training seminars and he has to sit on his wheelchair and people actually have to carry him from the wheelchair and bring him up on stage people have to carry his bible for him and so he'll hold his bible and try to flip his page and so he'll say this statement and people ask him, like, why? Like, why do you do this? Like, you know, you should be resting, you should be doing something else. And he says, in one statement, you know, he'll say this. Why does he do this? And he says, I, 
I do this because Jesus loves me. And I love Jesus. That's it. And that's why he does what he do. He realizes that Jesus loves him. And so, Christianity is not complicated. Christianity is like, oh, you know, God is a slave driver. He wants me to be a strong Christian so that I can do more things for him. What an evil slave driver he is. We have this perception of who God is because it always talks about work and doing things. But I realized one thing. Christianity is one of the simplest things ever. It's a relationship. Some of us have been in relationships before and we realize one thing. I love someone because, because it's just a natural natural thing. I don't have to work for it. It's not a chore. It's not a responsibility. It's natural. And God calls the same way. He loves you. He has pursued you. The moment Adam and Eve fell into sin, God's desire for you was to be intimate with Him. God's desire for you, God's ambition was, hey, I'm just going to chase. I'm going to relentlessly pursue you in love. And He does that and has enabled us to partner together with Him in ministry so that other people will realize His love. And so, when I say, hey, you know what, let's be battle stations, I don't want to have you have this impression and idea that, oh, you know, we have to work more, we have to strive more, we have to do more things. I'm telling you because it's a joy to be partnering with God. Partnering with God. I want you to think about Adam and Eve. You know, when Adam was created and kind of God says, hey, you know what, you need a helper, you know. It's quite a cool thing, you know, because Adam has been naming the plants and the animals. Just think about it, you know. God created Adam and he was creating, he was naming the plants and the animals. And then one day Jesus looked up to Jesus. God looked at Eve and says, hey. You know, looked at Adam and says, hey, you know, you look a bit bored doing all these things. You know, would it be good that I have a helper for you? And so we know the story, God created Eve. I want to, Think about it. Adam has been doing this for a few years. I don't know how long. He's been naming the plants and animals. And then suddenly, okay, let's create Eve. And suddenly he wakes up from his sleep and he sees Eve in front of him. How freaked out will you be? Right? But you know, I, I, I kind of picture that moment for a bit. And I, re- I, I kind of believe, I kind of believe that that was one of the most beautiful images that Adam has ever seen. He opened his eyes and he saw this beautiful person in front of him. And I believe he fell in love with her just because, hey, I have this Eve with me now. And suddenly when he goes out and names animals and plants, when he goes out to decide to dive in the oceans that he normally do on his, on his free day, now he has a companion together with him and he feels that joy doing that with him. He feels that happiness. Hey, now I've got a partner do, doing it together with me. And I kind of had this picture that it's like Jesus and the church. Jesus being like Adam, he could have done it by himself. No problem. Adam could have named all the plants and animals. He could have done everything himself. No sweat, no, no problem. But God decides that, hey, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ has to be there to partner. And so it becomes a joy. It becomes a joy for Eve because she is loved by Adam. And it becomes a joy for Adam because he's not doing it himself. He's got the church partnering him. He's got a woman partnering him. He's got the bride partnering him. And this is the role of the church. The purpose of the church is to partner together with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and let us do things together. And it's out of love, not of obligation. But the question is, are you for Jesus Christ? Are you for Jesus Christ? Are you for Jesus Christ? So this afternoon we're here and we're going to have a call 
see, the thing is, I don't, I don't really care about what you have done in your past life. I don't really care, not past life, but your past, your history. I don't really care about um, like whether you are living in sin, where your spiritual condition is now. I don't really care about what you've done wrong or right in your life. But what I'm bothered about or what I'm committed about is to ask you, what do you want to do now? So the question I have for you now is, do you want to be for Jesus Christ? I don't want you to, I don't ask you whether you were before and you know whether you have all these issues that you need to settle before or you know. I want to ask you, do you want to be for Jesus Christ today? And if you're standing here or sitting here this afternoon and you say, I want to be for Jesus Christ, I want to partner with Jesus Christ, I want to change society, I want to influence people, I want to be a carrier of his love and his kind deeds, I want to be for Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today this afternoon and you say that you want to be for Jesus Christ, I just invite you to stand up right now as a commitment. It says, I want to be for Jesus Christ. I want to be for Jesus Christ. I want to be sold out for Him. I will live to love Him. I will live to sing Your praises. I will live to glorify You. I will live because I am a child of God. I am a child of God. Why don't we just extend our hands to the heavens right now and say, God, you know what? This is a sign of me and say, God, as I am, take me, Lord. I want to be for you, Lord Jesus. And in your own place, wherever you're standing, I want you to make that prayer to God right now and say, God, I may not be perfect. I may not be the most brilliant person or the the person the most ability but you love me you love me you love me and God I want to love you back I just want to love you back and say God I want to be for you I want to be for you Jesus and wherever you are between you and God whatever you know that is preventing you to fully be of Jesus Christ. Tell God, God, this, Lord, maybe it's sin, maybe it's apathy, maybe it's disinterest. Lord, I lay it at your footstool and I commit it to you, God. Remove it, Jesus Christ. Remove it. And I really want you to mean that prayer. I don't want you to say it because we're outwardly religious. I really want to have a transformation, an inward transformation. I don't want you to leave these doors and suddenly it goes back to normal. I want you to go out these doors having that resolve, knowing that God has loved you with everything He has got and you're going to walk out through these doors changed. every eyes closed I just want to do this and I just want to do it because of a for a for act of faith on your part just as the prodigal son took that one step the 
father took that 999 steps just to chase the son. But with no eyes looking, with all eyes shut. And you're standing here today and you know that there are key areas in your life that's hindering you from fully saying, God, I want all of you. From fully saying that, God, I'm totally yours. Whether it's ambitions, whether it's your selfish ambitions, whether it's a sin in your life that cannot go away. You try to do it out of your own strength. You try to stop it with your own strength, but somehow you go back to it. You go back to it. Maybe it's a distraction that you have and with no eyes looking. And I just want you to take that step of faith. I'm not going to ask you to come up. I just want you to put your hands up right now and put it down quickly and say, God, you know what? I want to remove it. I want to remove it. And once you put it up, you can put it down. And God sees that hand. God sees that hand. He sees that step of faith. Jesus. Lord, I just want to commit every single person here in this room right now. Lord, every individual, every life, every young person here in this room, Lord, is a person that you love. It's an individual that you see as your son, as your daughter. And Lord, I pray, God, that even as tonight, that they've made this commitment tonight, even as they've made that commitment to say, God, I want to be all of yours. Lord, even as they make that commitment tonight, Lord, we know and we thank you. And Lord, you see some of their hearts. Lord, you see the struggles that they go through. You see some of the burdens that they carry on their backs. You see some of the hurts that they have. You see some of the things that they're going through in their lives. And they try, they try with all their might to overcome these things. But somehow they go back to it again. They somehow struggle with it again. But Lord, we also know, God, that you come in their time of need, that you will come in their time of struggles. You will come and you will overcome together with them. But all you're looking for, Lord, is for them to be willing to say, God, I am willing to commit it to you. Now, friends, let us not struggle with our own strength, but let us rely on God. Let us rely on God. So God, this afternoon, Lord, even as they walk out of the doors tonight, Lord, that they will fully depend on you. Depend on this God that loves us. Depend on this God that wants a relationship with us. Depend on this God that desires that intimacy with us. Lord, that you're not a slave driver, but Lord, you love us and you just want us to partner together with you. Oh, what a beautiful picture that you want us, you actually want us small as we are, inadequate as we are, you desire us, you still want us. How amazing, how beautiful is that? And even when we struggle, Lord, you still want us. So God, I just pray for every single one. In Jesus' name, I break, I break every sin, I break every curse in this room. In the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, I break every burden that people are carrying. Roll the way right now. I break every human perception about themselves, Lord. I break every lie the enemy has made about them. Whether it's a lie that they're not good enough, whether it's a lie that they are inadequate, whether it's a lie that they are not loved by anyone or anything, Lord, I break that lie right now in Jesus' name. For every sin, for every sin that they are struggling with, 
Lord, I pray, God, for a newfound resolve, knowing that they have been loved by you, fully loved by you, Lord, that when they face that situation again, Lord, I pray, God, that you will just give them that inkling in their mind that they will flee from temptation. Flee from temptation. Lord, you see this group that you will use mightily. Loud Gen, a ministry that you will use to impact cultures, that will influence society, that will go to their schools, that they will start prayer groups, they will start reaching out to the people around them, that they will be the salt and the light that you have called them to be. You have chosen them to be a royal priest with a holy nation, called forth to do marvelous things, to declare your marvelous light. So God, we thank you for every individual here in this place. You know, we're just going to sing How He Loves Us, and I just want you to sing that song and say, hey, you know what, God? We thank you for loving us. We thank you for loving us. So oh. 